Good morning again. Our scripture passage this morning comes from the book of Psalms as we continue our series through the Psalms this summer. And uh, our psalm this morning is Psalm 92. Now, this is a psalm of praise, a psalm of thanksgiving, one that reflects on what God has done, what is true of God, and then how we respond in, in song. You probably, it's, it's helpful to think of the Psalms as, as songs, as songs that God's people have sung throughout the generations. And you probably have favorite songs, we all have favorite songs, songs that we gravitate to when we're, when we're joyful, and songs that we gra- gravitate towards when we're, we're struggling. And Psalms fit an occasion just like the songs we sing fit occasions. And we have a, a note here in the text before we read it that it says this, a song for the Sabbath. That's our sort of occasion for this song. This song is to be sung, is to be prayed on the Sabbath. That should help us understand this this psalm as we move forward, and it tells us what is good. That's what the psalm offers us this morning. It tells us what is good. So would you stand this morning for the reading of God's Word? We'll read Psalm 92 together. A psalm, a song for the Sabbath. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. To sing praises to your name, O Most High. To declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. To the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom Of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. To declare that the Lord is upright, He is my rock, that there is no unrighteousness in Him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this, this passage. We thank you for your word here. As we come to it this morning, would you show us your truth? Would we see what is good, what is flourishing, what is right and good in this world? Or would you show us the hope, the conviction, the truth that we find here? Lord, would you bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together as we come to your word? We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So it's, it's that time of year where you can look at your, your lawn, if you have a lawn, and you can kind of see how it's, how it's doing. We've had some hot weather, and there might be some, some patches in your lawn that aren't doing particularly well. Uh, in our lawn, we've been there for about four years, and the back corner of our backyard just won't grow. I've come to the conclusion it's just not going to happen. We've watered it. We've tried things. It's just not, not growing. And if you like a nice sort of pristine lawn, that can be a little, little frustrating. But I've had to, and the reason that this, this piece of ground isn't, isn't flourishing, isn't growing, is two reasons. First, there's too much shade, but more prim- primarily, there's, there's too many little feet running around in that corner of the yard. And every time it grows, it just sort of gets, gets trampled down. 
What I've had to do is I've had to change my perspective to be okay with that dead part in the lawn. I've had to change the perspective and realize that that piece of ground is actually flourishing. It's flourishing because there's life there, there's activity, there's kids, kids playing there. Now, this psalm asks us to do something similar, to change our perspective on what is good, on what it actually means to, to flourish in this life. If we think of flourishing, we might have a number of things that we sort of pencil in there and say, these are, these are good things. It might be health. It might be success. It could be family. It could be sort of just uh, a, a all number of things like that that we say, this is what it means to, to flourish. And those are right good things that God gives to us in his beautiful creation. But this psalm moves us to something a little different, to say this is what is good. This is what it means to, to flourish. And it's this. It comes from the first verse of this psalm. It says this, It is good to praise and give thanks to God on high. That is what is good. It is good to give thanks to pray and praise to God on high. That is what is, it is good. Now, you might believe that. You might know that that's true. You might see it right there in, in verse 1. But we're going to ask a question this morning. Why is that true? Why is it good to give praise to God, give thanks to God? Why is this something that is good for us to do? And we'll see it begins with finding rest in in worship. Look with me at, at verse 1. It begins with this expansive language. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. It's exalted language. It's high praise, and it's, it's good. That word good is, is more than just it's, it's fitting or appropriate to do this, but it actually speaks to something that is pleasant, pleasurable, almost delightful or delectable. That's, that's all wrapped up in that word. It is good to do this. A similar psalm in Psalm 147, we see this in the first verses. It says, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant. And a song of praise is, is fitting. This is the, the posture that we're given in the psalms of what is good and right and, and flourishing. What's the, what's the context of this, this psalm? If you look at the, the title here, below how great are your works, or whatever your, your translation has put there, it says this, a psalm a song for the Sabbath. Now, this title has been handed down with the rest of the psalm through, through church history, and it gives us the, the occasion or the purpose for this, for this psalm, and it is a psalm for the, for the Sabbath. Now, that's going to be important in a moment as we, we think about how to take this and, and live it out in our lives. The Sabbath is this day that God gave to His people for, for rest. The last day of the week, when God had finished His work, we were invited into to rest together. And worship is connected into that, that rest. Rest was something uniquely given to God's people. Other cultures didn't have a, a weekly rhythm of, of rest, but here God's people are given this, this rest. And it's in this context that they sing and, and praise. And it's this praise in verse 2 that we see again, to declare what is good, your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. It's a, it's a pattern of living that we're offered here in the morning, waking up and saying, your, your loyal love, your covenant faithfulness, that is what is good and right. And then in the evening, looking back on the day and saying, God, God really has been faithful. God has been faithful through this day. This is a pattern of, of worship that we see throughout Scripture Plate morning and evening. There were morning and evening sacrifices. This is something that God's people have used. If you look back at sort of devotional literature, literature throughout the, the centuries of Christian faith, this pattern of morning and evening worship is something that is given to us. 
by God, to, to start the mornings with his mercy and his grace and to, in the evening, reflect on his, on his faithfulness. We see this even in, maybe you've used Charles Spurgeon's Morning and Evening. That book follows this, this pattern. Various, all these devotionals follow this pattern. And, and here we see it reflected in, in Scripture, that this is what we're, we're offered and given what is good. And as we do this, we, we rejoice in the name of who God is, O Most High. This is not just sort of a God is just great, but it gives us some specificity. Your name, O Lord, Most High, He is the most exalted one, the one who is worthy of all of our worship this morning and every day. Verse 3 asks us to, to worship in a way that is, is beautiful and, and reflective of God's wonder. It says here, to the music of the lute, the harp, and the melody of the lyre. Now, we don't know exactly what all those instruments connect to, but it's a picture of God's people using their gifts to give beautiful worship to God. That's what we're called into this morning. And what, what, is this, what does this do for us? Verse 4, it says, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your works. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. Gladness, joy, this is what we respond to God's works with. We don't need to maybe over-spiritualize gladness and joy. This is something that as we look at what God has done, we, we rejoice in that. And this is also where we see the connection to what God is doing here, what he's asking us to do in worship and this day of rest that he gives us. What are we rejoicing in? Well, we're rejoicing in your work, the work of your hands. And that's distinctly appropriate for the Sabbath. Think back to why we have this day of rest that God gave us. Well, back in creation, right? That's where we get the Sabbath. God worked, created everything in six days, and on the seventh day, he, he rested. It's a day of delighting in God's, God's work. And we see that reflected throughout, throughout Scripture when we get to the Exodus, when the Sabbath is given back to God's people. Remember, there wasn't any Sabbath when they're working for Pharaoh, right? He's not going to give his slaves a day off. They work constantly. And then in the new promised land that they're given, they are given the Sabbath back. They're given a day to, to rest, to rejoice in God's work and rest in that and give him worship. It's the same for us today. We don't celebrate on the last day of the week, but now the first day of the week, and that's because of the resurrection. On this Sunday, we're celebrating God's work being completed. We are glad in that work. We sing because of that work. We declare that it is good to give thanks because of God's work that he accomplished through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. That's what this is inviting us to do, that even our, our desire for rest, our need for rest is is found its fulfillment in worship. Worship here, the, the worship offered here typifies our, our rest. It sort of points to what is true of our rest, that we stop our work and we rejoice in who God is and what he has, what he has done. Now, you might think this morning, coming to worship on Sunday is the least restful thing you could have done. Maybe not quite as true at the, the 1030 service, but at the 9 o'clock service, the, the people who woke up and, you know, like the spouse had to elbow them to say, hey, we're going at 9 this morning, that, that sort of thing, you might say, that doesn't sound restful. Should have had another cup of coffee, just a slow morning, watch some golf. You know, that might have been more restful. But this psalm asks us to reconsider that and to actually connect our worship together as finding rest, spiritual rest in what is, what is true. To remind it of, of what is really true in this, in this world. And I think many of us have probably come in here this morning tired. Work is hard. Family life is difficult. Things are, are challenging. And, and you feel sort of this pressure of, of work kind of pushing down on you. 
Maybe some of you know this, but back in 1965, there was a Senate subcommittee that did a study on the future of work in America. And they made a prediction that in year 2000, we would work 14 hours a week. <laughs> now, that obviously hasn't happened. The average American works over 40 hours a week. Now, what is that? What do we do with that, though, this, this real reality that we, we would like to work maybe 14 hours a week, and yet we're working all the time. We're, we're wrapped up in the work. Well, God gives us this Sabbath, this gift of rest, to actually celebrate what is true, that God has accomplished this, that his work is finished. And so we worship him on a day like this and say, God is, God is finished. He's finished the work in Jesus. That is all done and complete. Sometimes it's helpful to remind ourselves that the, the commandment is not offered as a, or the Sabbath is not offered as an option, but as an actual command. A lot of us think about the Sabbath this way, and just rest in general, that if we work really hard for six days, then we can probably squeeze in a Sabbath. Maybe this week we'll, we'll kind of get everything done and we'll, we'll take a break. Nowhere in Scripture are we told that the Sabbath is something we earn. The Sabbath is a gift to God's people. It's a gift to God's people to say, the work, is, the work is done. The work that matters, the work that Christ has accomplished is done. You don't need to strive endlessly. In fact, the Psalms say it's, it's vain to do that, to rise up early and stay up late unless, what? The Lord builds his house. Unless God is at work, unless we look to God's finished work, then our labors are in vain. And so we're called into this pattern of, of rest doesn't mean we sort of slough off for six days a week and then just enjoy rest. No, we're called to work hard, to use the gifts and abilities God has given us. And yet, when we come to this day of rest, to, to do what the psalmist does here and say, your work, what you have finished, what you have accomplished, is right and good. I think this is especially important for us in our cultural context that we live in. We are often defined by what we can produce. Maybe in your career, you're really just defined by how much you can get done how much you can sort of accomplish for, for someone else. The Sabbath is a, is a movement of resistance to that, to push back on this and say, you aren't defined by your ability to produce. That's, that's Exodus slavery type of, of language. Back there, how were Israelites defined? By their brick production, right? The more bricks they could produce, the more valuable they were to, to Pharaoh, but here, their new king, the one that we worship and praise today, says, you're created in the image of God. I give you this day of rest, to rest in what I have done, what I have accomplished. And so often, I think we, we try to rush through rest so that we can become more productive again. And yes, rest makes you more productive. There are studies on that. But that's not the sole purpose of rest. It's resting in what God has done, worshiping him, even as we gather this morning. There's a passage in Amos 8, verse 5, that talks about God's people at a time when they're in rebellion, and they sort of resist this Sabbath principle. They're longing for the Sabbath to be over. Why? So they can go sell grain, they can go back to selling wheat, go back to their, their business. This psalm here corrects that, instructs us that we are, we are really free to rest. We're free from what's sometimes called the, the work under the work. We don't need to sort of prove our identity anymore in the work that we do because God has accomplished what he is going to accomplish. Our identity is securely connected in him. And when we go after all the idols, all the sort of the false views of what is good and flourishing, those things sap us of energy. They constantly demand more and more. And what does God do? He says, come and rejoice in my work. 
Come and rejoice in what is finished. That's why we need to be together on a Sunday morning to hear this sung to each other, to say these words like Psalm 92 together and say, this is, this is what is true. This is what is, is good, to worship God, to give praise to Him because of what he, has, what he has done and to enjoy this together. Even as we see the benefit of this, this rest and this wonder, this passage also calls us to recognize the work of God, to recognize what He is, is doing. Verse 5 says this, How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are, are very deep. It's this posture of, again, looking on this morning at all that God has done and rejoicing in that and saying, it is so wonderful. It is so deep. We can't plumb the depths of it. It's similar to what Paul says in, in Romans 11, looking at the gospel and bringing Jews and Gentiles together. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. It's the type of depth that we see here. In fact, this depth actually introduces two categories, if you will, of of people, two definitions of what is good, what it means to, to flourish. And God's moral judgment sits above these things, and we marvel at it. The first people, the first definition of what is good comes in verse 6. It says this, the stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand. Now, who is this person? This is similar to some of the wisdom literature we see in Scripture. The fool is not somebody who is unintelligent, not somebody who just really can't add two plus two and is, is sort of confused and foolish. In that regard, it's a person who may be very intelligent, very gifted, very competent, very successful in the world's view, but he doesn't see the things as they really are. He doesn't know what is really good. This foolish person is sort of slow-witted when it comes to the things of God, one who is even arrogant when it comes to the things of God and says, I know better. I know what it means to be good. I know what it means to, to flourish. And the psalmist pushes back against that. We see a picture, though, of the, the flourishing that may seem to happen from the wicked. Verse 7, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish. We'll pause there for a moment. That's sometimes how it looks, isn't it? You look at people who may not know Jesus or people who are pursuing things outside of the gospel and God's kingdom, and you say, they, they seem to be doing all right. They're successful. They've got some security. Maybe their families are even a little bit kinder to each other than ours. How, how does this all work? How do, how do we see those things in the world and, and take them to Scripture and understand what, what God is saying? What it says in this verse here is similar to what Psalm 73 and verse 3 says. It says this, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And the psalmist there wrestles with this and sees these, these folks that seem to be flourishing. What, what do we do with that? How do we understand that. Well, the second part of this verse helps us see. It says this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. Now, we're not reading this as sort of a, a gotcha moment where it's like, oh, yeah, they're, they're not going to have it good in the end. This is a sobering reality to say that it might look like flourishing, but outside of God, it's, it's doomed. And it's not talking about simply things not going well. It's really talking about destruction. It's talking about consequences for sin. It's talking about the reality of, of hell and punishment for what is wicked. 
And we need to remind ourselves of those things, of what is ultimate, what is eternal. That's how we make sense of of these things that seem to flourish. In the end, they do not flourish. They do not give us what is good and right. We'll see where we find that in a moment. What do we do with this? Well, we begin to see sort of a a gospel wonderment when we see this, that, that we only by the grace of God, are not foolish to spiritual things. Only by God's grace, only by His giving us eyes of faith can we actually look and see that, that what God does is, is right and good. His way, His kingdom principles, living in that reality is what will give us what is right and good. So we need to move in wonderment. We also need to ask ourselves the question, where are we looking at the world? Where are we trying to live our lives off of this temporal grass-like flourishing, this sort of flash-in-the-pan flourishing in internal perspective? Where have we bought into that as what really makes us flourish? We need people in our lives, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a good friend, to, to ask us hard questions and to say, what's, what's really your definition of what is good? What does it actually mean to flourish? Where are you pouring your energy, your time, your resources into? What, what does it mean to to live a good life? Where is abundant life found? To ask each other questions like that and begin to have this eternal perspective of what is lasting and what is good. I don't know how many of you watched the last Kentucky Derby. Um, If you didn't, you should go back and watch it. Take two minutes of your time, but it's well worth the the two minutes. Uh, Kentucky Derby, the horse race, you probably know the outcome. It was all over the news that the horse with the longest odds won the Derby. It's like 80 to 1 odds, and this, this horse won. Now, if you've watched it, you'll notice that one of the most fascinating things about this is not just this horse with this resilience sort of pushing past, coming past all these horses, and finally at the last minute winning is the announcer. If you, if you go on the NBC broadcast and listen to the announcer, Larry Colmus has done these announcements a lot, a lot before, and it's, it's a high-pressure thing just trying to call what he's seeing. And the last 30 seconds of the race, he's totally focused on another horse. There's this horse, Epicenter, who's coming up, passing horses. Everybody's celebrating this horse. He thinks Epicenter is going to win. The announcer does not mention the winning horse until he crosses the finish line in first place. And he didn't botch the call. That's what it looked like was going to happen. But this horse, Rich Strike, came from the back of the pack all the way to the front and won the derby. It's a small picture of reframing our perspective now, life isn't a horse race that we sort of squeak in and we actually win and we beat everybody else because we're Christians, but it is asking us to sort of reframe how we're looking at these things. So often we're like that announcer who's sort of laser-focused on this thing that seems to be successful, seems to be doing everything right, but this psalm reminds us that ultimately God is the one who wins victory. Ultimately, we flourish not because we seem to be doing well in the short term, but in the end, what matters is what God has done what God accomplishes. And this is why we know it is good to worship and give praise to God. Right at the center of this psalm in verse 8 is this, but you, O Lord, are on high forever. That's where we celebrate. That's what we rejoice in, just as the gospel is sort of a, a surprise ending. Jesus is in a tomb. Seems like all is done. Then he raises from the dead and declares victory over sin, victory over death. And that moves us into rejoicing, into to worship together. 
Verse 9 shows us this demise of God's enemies. And verse 10 brings us up to the exaltation of his people. But you have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. Now those images of an ox horn and oil might not be deeply encouraging to you, but as we read those, we're reminded that this is a picture of great strength. The wild ox was an animal of almost legendary strength. Lifted up, exalted, fresh oil of flourishing, of abundance. This is real flourishing, found in and through God and what he offers us as we follow him in and through the gospel. There's real defeat that he, the psalmist sees in verse 11. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. He knows what's to come. He knows who wins, and he lives his life aligned with that. The psalm calls us to expect those long odds. So often I think we think that we're, we're losing, whatever that means. We think Christians are losing. This psalm reminds us that there's this different story that God is working. God is at work. God will win the victory. We don't sort of have these expectations of trying to struggle through. God will win the, the victory in his time, in his way. We need to remember this language in verse 10 where it says, but you have exalted where God interjects into what seems to be a defeat and says there is victory. Maybe, maybe we need to talk this way with each other. I'm not talking about anybody in this room, just sort of when you get Christians together, we get pretty cynical pretty quickly. We get pretty critical pretty quickly. We think everything's falling apart and everything's going whatever, and, and, and maybe that's, that's true in a temporal sort of way. But what if we, what if we started looking at, at Scripture like this and, and started asking questions and saying, where are things going well in your life? When was the last time somebody asked you a question like that? We can all come up with a list of things that aren't going well. But what if we asked each other, what's, what's going well in our lives? Where, where do we see this reality of, of verse 10, but you have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox? Now, I'm not talking about living on sort of a mountaintop experience. Maybe some of you came in this morning with, with a, sort of a limp coming into worship. You barely, you barely got here this morning. Even in those moments, this, this passage gives us some real hope that, that ultimately God knows what he's doing. That ultimately when we, when we follow God, when we pursue him, when we rest in his work, there's, there's good things for us. His love, his care, his, his morning gift of his, faith, of his love and his evening gift of his, his faithfulness, that those things are good for us. And it's in that place where we turn to him that we see that we get roots to, to flourish. These last few verses, 12 through 15, it says this, the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. This is a, a contrast with that grass that we saw earlier, that grass that grows and then is, then is dead. Here we have a cedar, a strong tree of Lebanon, one that is good and strong for building, one that is built for the long haul, one that will support and support God's people. And then this palm tree, one that is probably a date tree that produces fruit, that gives shade, that is lush. These are, these are permanent things compared with the sort of transient things of the others. This is what is, is really good. This is what is life-giving. And how are these trees so good? This tree of Lebanon and these palm trees, well, verse 13, they are planted in the house of the Lord. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. Now, it's, what is that talking about? There aren't literal trees in the temple, in God's courts. That's not what it's pointing to, but it's saying right there is where they draw their strength from. 
You could almost say these trees aren't just planted there, but they're, they're transplanted there. They've moved to where they find life. They move to where they will find everything they need to grow and become mature trees that give all of the life that they could. You see this kind of language throughout Scripture. We, we said it in our uh, call to worship this morning. When we are tired, that we turn to God, and He, he lifts us up. He gives us strength on the wings like eagles. In Luke 13, there's a, a, a picture of a tree that isn't producing fruit, and the master of the tree wants to sort of cut down the tree and get rid of it. And then the, the, the attendant, the gardener, comes and says, let's, let's cut around this tree. Let's cultivate it. Let's put manure on it. Let's get it water, and we'll see how it grows. Some of us need to do that this morning. We need to say, hey, how do we need to reshape our lives so that they are planted in the house of the Lord? Where, where do we need to recultivate our lives, sort of get the good fertile soil around us so that we would flourish like this? Not just in, for a moment, but to the old age. They're ever full of sap and green. This is talking about a spiritual stamina, a spiritual vitality that doesn't sort of evaporate at some point in our lives, but that keeps growing as we go further and further into our age, into our 70s, our 80s, our 90s, our 100s. We can still grow. We can still have our roots planted here. It's just what is said in John 15, isn't it? That he is the vine and, and we are the branches. That's really what this, this passage is talking about in terms of how do we have what is good? How do we have what flourishes? It's being joined to Christ. As we're joined to him, as by faith we're in union with him, that's how we begin growing. As we turn to his word, as we gather as his people, even on a Sunday morning, when our roots are here in the things of God, we grow and we flourish, and we bring this, this life-giving reality to all those around us. A number of years ago, my wife and I planted a tree. Different state, we were in a new subdivision, and there, weren't, there wasn't a lot of landscaping in the subdivision. And so we said, hey, we're going to plant a tree. And so we went to, I think it was Home Depot, and picked up a decent, like the biggest tree for the lowest price that we could find, and we put it in our front yard. And we were really proud of our tree. And we were even more proud when a lot of our neighbors did exactly the same thing. We started a thing, and there were probably, I don't know, five or six of these trees in the next few months as people also went to Home Depot and bought this tree and put it in. And it looked, we were rejoicing what it was going to look like in 20 years or whatever when these trees matured. I went on Google Street View. The tree is still there as of a couple years ago. It's grown a little bit. And so we could stop the story there, and it would be a good story about sort of trees growing we found out after we planted the tree and had moved to Texas that that tree is now illegal in the state of South Carolina. It is an invasive species, and you are no longer legally allowed to sell or plant that tree. Now, what does that have to do with this? Well, this. Some of us are like that tree, that we have planted ourselves in a place that we should not be, a place that we should not grow a place where we, we ultimately can't grow, a place that we will perish. That tree was outlawed because it doesn't have the root structure and it falls over in, in big winds when it gets tall. That's like many of us, maybe. We've rooted ourselves in things that aren't good for us, that won't cause us to flourish. This passage reminds us that it is the gospel, it is the truth of God's word. When we are rooted in that, and then we reflect that in worship and praise to God, that's when we grow. That's when we can say with this psalmist that it is, it is good. And with Paul in 2 Corinthians, we can say that we don't lose heart, even though sort of the, the outside is wasting away, but on the inside we're being renewed. 
shaped more and more into the image of Christ that, as St. Augustine said, that all of our lives from head to toe is lived as a hallelujah. Praise to God because of His work. And so when we rest in worship, when we recognize the work of God and when our roots are planted to flourish, that's when we can say with the psalmist that it is good to give thanks to the Lord because His work is sure and we confidently can move forward in that together as we come on a Sunday morning and say together, it is good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, would you help us see the wonder of this gospel truth? Lord, would you root us deeply in the things of God that we might know the truth, that we would flourish, that we would even abound in in hope and the wonder of the gospel? Lord, if we are living in a way that is not committed to what is good, in a way that is putting our roots down into things that, that aren't helpful, would you transplant us, so to speak, this morning into the truth of your gospel? Would you renew our hope in that? Would you show us the reality of your truth? We pray this in your name. Amen.